Genesis chapter 4. We're actually going to be looking at Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 today. So this is, we come to that part of the Bible this morning that people skip over when they're reading. We've come to the genealogical section, well, the first one. There's actually several in the Bible, uh, but the first two in Genesis 4 and Genesis chapter 5, and we're going to actually cover uh, all of Genesis, or the half of Genesis 4, the second half of it, and all of Genesis 5 today. We'll be, we'll be reading this, but not right away, because I want to make some remarks before we jump into it. Most people just get distracted in genealogy sections of the Bible with the difficult sounding names and the far away feel of it all. Um, but there is actually very significant and helpful theological truth found in the scripture. Um, the first two genealogical lists, let me just give you a brief overview of this. Uh, we know what became of Abel, right? Last week, he was murdered. What became of Cain? That's sort of the introduction for this genealogy. So what became of Cain? What happened with Cain? The murderer in this. Now both, and then chapter 5. Oh, so then what became of Adam? Well, that was, that's a weird way to start it because we already talked about Adam and then Eve and then Cain and then Abel and then Cain again. And why we have a new Toledot section in chapter 5, a new section of this what became of is because now we're looking at the true seed through Adam, and we don't talk about Cain, and we don't talk about Abel in chapter 5, but a third son named Seth. And so that's the issue here. So interestingly, Moses seems to like when he arranges things, he likes to use uh, good arrangements with numbers, a variety of numbers. Seven is often used of an arrangement of things in 14s and such. But the genealogy lists, he often arranges in groups of 10. And so there are 10 names mentioned in 4, 16 through 24, and there are 10 names mentioned in chapter 5. Um, 10 generations or 10 names mentioned there, and he seems to do that. By the way, he does the same thing in Genesis 9, when he gives the next genealogical list, he gives 10 names. And I don't think there's anything, um, some numeric, numerological code in this, it's just a good way of arranging things. Arranges it in 10. Now, we might think that, well, we're going to read the list of Cain, and what we're going to find there are all these guys that have these strange names, and there's lots of strange names in the Bible, um, at least to us, but they're all going like, to have some deeper meaning of like bad things, like I hate God in the meaning of the name or something like that. You know, when we get to the ones of Seth, it's going to be like Jehovah is king, and, and what gets confusing is that actually a lot of the names are very similar and actually, some of them are identical. And, and this has caused scholars to just wonder, what is going on here? Like, for example, two of the most important names you'll read in these lists is Enoch and Lamech. And there's a good Enoch and a bad Enoch, and a good Lamech and a bad Lamech. And they say, what's the meaning of this? And my response is, well, ask any parent who names their kids Ken, Jen, and Ben... What's the meaning of all this? And they don't know. It's just the nature of naming names. And so, yes, sometimes there are meaning to names. And some of those will have some implications. But the text will always give us that implication. It's not ours to, like, try to uh, suss out some deeper meanings in, in the names or the numbers or that sort of thing. Um, so I'm going to try to keep it straight because, like I said, the names will sound very familiar. The two of them are identical. They're not the same people. Okay. Um, so we'll just have to keep that straight. 
Let me give you just very briefly before we begin reading, though, three principles that you can consider whenever you encounter uh, genealogy lists in the Bible. So this is true for most every genealogical list. First of all, this seems obvious, but I think it's important to say, these are not complete pictures of humanity. There are lots more people in existence than what are named in these genealogies. There's a clue in chapter 5 because it says this often at the end of a person saying your name is say, and he had sons and daughters, meaning there's a lot more people that were born. Add to that, which we'll read the extraordinarily, apparently extraordinarily long lives they lived. The minimum was like, well, Enoch didn't die, but the minimum outside of Enoch was like 700 some years. And they had sons and daughters. That's a lot of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and cousins and second cousins and so on. In other words, we see from the list, they are being fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth. They're filling it up. These aren't, so there's a lot of stories here we don't know. Not only about these names, but what about all these other people? In fact, in the time frame of Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, nearly a thousand years elapses. And all we have are some names about it and a few remarks here and there. So not a complete picture of humanity at this time. But that does help us answer, and I'm not going to spend any time on this today, but it does help us answer that question that skeptics love to throw out often with this book of Genesis. Oh yeah? Well, where did Cain get his wife? Well, if you look at the situation here, there are all these new sons and daughters, cousins and grandkids and great-grandkids and all these people being born, and they're multiplying for a thousand years and that's, you just think how a family tree works? There's plenty of people that could be Cain's wife at this time, as well as Seth's wife and all the other people that are mentioned here. But it's not a complete picture. Number two, and rarely do genealogies give a complete picture. Two, as I already mentioned, they're not primarily mysterious, coded, hidden meanings in genealogies. As I said, sometimes names have significant meanings. This is true of actually the first... Uh, people, Seth's son and Enoch's son, for example, or Seth's son and Cain's son, for example, they have some meaning in their names. But the text implies this. The text tells us something to say, hey, note their names here. The same thing is true of Noah. His name has meaning, but the text tells us, hey, this is the meaning of it. Same thing when naming Cain and naming Seth. It says, this is why she named him those things. When you don't see that in the text, we don't say, and this is why, or look at this, then don't try to assign a meaning to a name out of our own speculative wishes. Also, the numbers, they're not significant. They're used for organizational purposes. And this is precisely because people tend to get involved in the mysterious or the coded or the hidden meanings of genealogies, precisely while Paul the Apostle warns us, don't heed endless genealogies. Be very careful with genealogies. But thirdly, the principle, and this is true of all genealogies, what their purpose is, is to give us a bloodline to bring us to a significant person or event. Put it another way. The most important person in a genealogical list is the last person that it talks about. It's leading us to that. So here... The most significant person will lead us to this guy named in Cain's lie, line to a guy named Lamech. And the most significant in um, 
Seth's line is to lead us to this guy named Noah. Cain's, or Lamech's three sons will be mentioned, and then Noah's three sons will be mentioned. But there's sort of uh, not the main figure leading us to these main patriarch of Lamech and Noah. And then we, if you were to go to Genesis chapter 9, there's another genealogy there. We'll hit it another time. And it leads us to another significant person named Abraham. You go to a genealogy in the book of Ruth, and it starts with all these names, and then it leads us to this really significant person named David. And you read the two genealogies in the New Testament, in Matthew and Luke. And what's their purpose? They lead us to this really, really significant person named Jesus. So that's the point. We're looking at the last name. It's, it's establishing a connection from here to this guy. And usually when the last person is mentioned, or that last individual that it's about, there's some very significant event going on. Something really important happening. So those are, this is true of all genealogies, those three things. They're not complete pictures of humanity. They're not primarily mysterious or mystical or coded. And three, they lead us to a final person or event in the genealogical list. Now, why are we not just going to quickly read over this and just jump into the really interesting stuff like, you know, the flood in our series through Genesis? Because of a conviction I have based upon Paul the Apostle when he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching. Like, this is profitable. This is good for us. So, we're going to start here with the genealogy of Cain, the way of Cain, the people of Cain. Quite clearly, the intention in these genealogies is to assume that the people of Cain, that these are godless, that this is sort of the cursed line, the ones who are living apart from God like Cain. We don't have any record of their individual lives. We know nothing of Irad and Mushael or anything like that, but that's the implication. And the same thing is true when we get to Seth. The implication is these guys are godly people. They're living in a godly way. And it's the implication in the contrast. But let's think about the way of Cain or the people of Cain. Genesis 4, 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod in the east of Eden. Very briefly, this is in the genealogy. This is the introduction, the transition from last week. Cain, because he's a murderer, because he's been cursed, because he's been driven from the presence of the Lord, he leaves the presence of the Lord. He lives in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, there is no, uh, God is not condemning a geographical location as if east is evil and west is good. However, in the scripture, the movements east usually signify movements away from the place of God's presence. And movements back west would indicate movements toward um, it's just a general biblical way of describing it. Where did he go, this land of Nod? Um, actually, that probably is no place named Nod. No historians can find it, nor archaeologists can find it anywhere. And perhaps that's because the Hebrew word Nod is the word, actually, that means nowhere. Um, it means wander. It means um, be a Bedouin. It's the idea of just kind of wandering. And perhaps this actually, I think this is probably right. This is what we're reading. He dwelt in the land of nowhere. He dwelt as a wanderer. He dwelt as one who never had roots any place. Which, of course, accords with the curse that God put upon Cain. So here's the genealogy. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. 
This is not the Enoch that you're familiar with that didn't die. Okay? That's a different Enoch that we found in the next genealogy. The time just doesn't work for this to be the same Enoch. This one does have some significance, and it's noted in the text because it says, and he built the city and named the city after his son Enoch. This is most likely Cain built the city, not Enoch. And the idea here is the word Enoch, name Enoch means devoted or dedicated. And there's a little bit of a play on words. He dedicated the city to his son Enoch. Um, We'll come back to that, but just file that away. 18. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushahel, and Methushahel begot Lamech. So we have quick breeze through a lot of names here, a lot of generations without anything said about them. Because that's leading us to this last main guy that the rest of the text really be devoted to. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. So what do we note here? First... It's just significant, interesting. We have the first record of polygamy in the Bible. Um, We do know that polygamy was never condoned by God through Scripture, and Jesus instead affirmed that his plan was one man, one woman, one lifetime. We do know that godly people practice polygamy in the Bible, but perhaps, perhaps there is something to the fact that the first mention of this polygamous relationship is connected to one of the most violent, barbaric individuals in the Old Testament. Perhaps there's something to that, that Moses is sort of um, in a gentle way teaching the nation of Israel who was prone that way. So something to consider. We have his two wives uh, described here and his three sons and one daughter. Now, he probably had more children than this. And so the big question that people love to battle over is like the things that aren't mentioned. Like, why is Nama, the daughter, mentioned here? She's the only woman in all the genealogy list to be mentioned here in, in Genesis 4 and 5. And she comes at the end. And so the ancient Jews kind of came up with a legend that this is Noah's wife. Because Noah and Nama sounds alike. And there's zero proof of that, and it's actually not even a very common Jewish perspective. It's kind of a legendary thing. And, and others have said, oh, no, it's because her name sounds like bitter. Naomi is bitter. So maybe the, the end of Lamech is bitterness. But all of that is speculative. And for my opinion, given Moses' penchant for nice, round things, she makes, first of all, she makes a nice pair because you've got the two wives and then two sons, two children of each wife. Makes a nice pair. Moses likes pairs a lot. And then also, she makes the 10th person in the list. I think she was actually listed simply because Moses wanted a round figure, and she's the next one born to give 10 lists. But you could argue about that, and we could fight that till the, till the cows come home, and none of us would be any better for it at the end. But you have these three-ended sons, though, that seem quite significantly par- contrasted with Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Jubal, Jabal, and Tubal. Um, 
See, this process of confusing people by naming all your children to sound alike has a really ancient history to it. So, what's fascinating is it describes these three brothers as being responsible for massive human developments. Artistry and music and metallurgy and, 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 and livestock breeding and all this sort of stuff. And so we, we get this sort of like picture of what's going on here. But Moses uh, stops and, and as, he, as, he, as he pauses to consider Lamech for a moment. Remember the significant one it's going toward? He gives us a song that Lamech wrote. Or Lamech sang. And he writes it down for us. And we're going to read that. Then I want to pause on that for just a moment. Because it's really interesting. Verse 23. Then Lamech said to his wives. Ada and Zillah hear my voice. Wives of Lamech listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me. Even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold. Then Lamech seventyfold. I want to quickly run through his Song of the Sword, as uh, um, commentators have, have dubbed it, the Song of the Sword of Lamech. It won because it's a fantastic example of uh, Hebrew poetry with parallelism. You notice the, two, the pairs there? Ada and Zillah and wives of Lamech, then listen to my speech, hear my voice. He says, a man for bruising me, a young man for hitting me, Cain shall be avenged seven, Lamech 77 times, right? So you, there's a clear like these parallel ideas through it. And yet there is one particular line that has no parallel in it. I have killed a man. And in poetry, this is a way of emphasizing that this is the significance of his song. So let's just think through it for just a moment. First of all, his bragging to his wives, Ada and Zillah, wives of Lamech. Listen to my speech. Hear my voice. So I don't know why he's doing this, but the idea of boasting, bragging to your wives that you're a murderous villain is either rather bold or abusive. There's either threatenings here. He's either threatening his wives or or he's just so proud of the fact that he's a murderer that he wants his dear ones to treasure him for it. Either way, there's some clear expressions of Cain's depravity magnified here. Second, when he says, listen to my speech, hear my voice, a little subtle note here. Throughout this text to this point, you know who has had, or who Moses has described as speaking more than anyone else? You know And God said, let there be light. And God said, and they fled from the voice of the Lord, the sound of the Lord. And you have this sort of shift here in the thoughts, and I think in the poetry here. Listen to my speech, hear my voice. So there's not only a a violent anger involved here, but there is this massive arrogance that is on display. This ego that my words... My voice is all you need to hear. You go back to to that. He says, I have the the third, the non-paired line, I have killed a man. The word killed there in the Hebrew, it's a very common word for to kill, but it's always in reference to murder. It's it's always in reference to uh, violent death. Uh, 
you could translate that, I have violently killed someone. Now, man is not in the text because it's connected in the next phrase, a man for bruising me, a young man for hitting me. And the contrast is being expressed here. That word bruising there is, is, is literally to like to squeeze, to split, to squeeze like a fig. So picture this, what he's saying. I have violently killed someone because I got a bruise. Because he bruised me. Because I, a little stinger. So I'm going to violently kill. And then when he says a young man, that young man, that word can range anywhere from a child to one who's 40 plus years old. And so it's not necessarily that it was a little child. It could have been. But the idea of him bruising and hitting seems a little bit less like it was a little infant. It seems a little older. And this is either him bragging because he bested a young man in the strength of his youth. Like, like this young man took me on and I took that um, little twerp down. That's either the concept here, or it's more of the bully concept of like, he's picking on the smaller, younger people. We don't really know exactly, but that word hitting there as well simply means to strike, or even can be used in the scripture to say to slap. And so intentionally, you can see in the poem, there's this contrast. I have violently murdered someone because I got a bruise and a slap. And this is expressing, the, the point of this is expressing the arrogance and the barbaric nature of this Lamech. Now it gets more chilling when you get the last pair. If Cain shall be avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now what is he essentially saying there is this. If there is a thousand dollars on the wanted poster for Cain, then let there be a million dollars on the wanted poster for Lamech. Now, that is obviously harkens back to his arrogance, right? But it also points to us the reality that how many generations in the ninth generation, or I think it's actually the seventh generation, sorry, the seventh generation from Adam, Cain is still the example or the standard for evil, even amongst his own people. If Cain should be avenged, then Lamech should be avenged more. So if this is a contemporary with the other genealogies, we're talking about 700 years after Cain, after his murder, his name is notorious for vengeance. So very dark picture, right? By the way, this brings us to Genesis chapter 6, when God says they looked at the wickedness on the earth, the earth that was full of wickedness, and everyone did only what was evil in their heart continually. What do you mean by that? Well, look at Lamech. Look at this. This is what I'm talking about. This is what we understand there. So what's the takeaway? <laughs> well, the vileness of Cain is in full bloom in his descendants. The arrogance and insolence against God and his image bearers is barbarically displayed. And do not forget this. Those who hate God will eventually hate those who bear God's image. Do not be surprised in a world that has rejected God, that they reject the sanctity of life. Do not be surprised at that. 
And we see the arrogance and, and, and this angst, not only against God, but against the image bearers. And then the depravity is the new norm for humanity. Who's a contemporary of Noah? There's a reason for the flood in this text. There's something concrete we can look at. Well, the next verses in chapter 4 are very interesting because it's like Moses has a little stutter here. He actually starts the genealogy of Seth, Adam, Adam through Seth, but then does it again in chapter 5. And why would he do that? Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And we're going to come back to this in a little bit later at the end of the sermon today. But Moses is calling us now in the, in the same context of talking about Lamech and then Jubal and Tubal and Jabal and all this. He's calling us to now quickly swing our attention back over to another side. He throws us immediately over, but there's this Seth. And he had a son too. And his son was named Enosh. And I think there's an intention why Enosh and Enoch are so similar sounding names. If for no other reason, I think the intention is for Moses to cause us to say, we're supposed to read chapter 4 and chapter 5 together. We're supposed to see the contrast. It's intentional in the text. And Moses is swinging our attention back to the other side now after looking at the depravity of the Canaanite line. Hey, let's say, let's look at the other side. Let's look at the Sethite line. And that's what he's doing to the nation, for, the, for the first uh, Jewish readers and also for us as well. So let's look at the Sethite line. Now, let me just briefly explain what I have here. Probably is imperfect. Um, but I tried to calculate all these names and dates and everything like that. And this is the lifespans of the people who lived from, in chapter 5, from Adam to Noah. So keep this in mind, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to kind of give some comments about it before we come to our application of the sermon. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalael. After he begot Mahalael, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. And after he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch 
walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Obviously, this is very different than everything else we've read, right? We'll continue. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. Different Lamech, okay? After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The genealogy ends with Noah, not with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, because it picks up again in chapter 9 with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah, and continues on there. It's just kind of given the balance to Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So a couple of brief observations again, and then we'll jump into the applications of this. And what I want to do at the end is we're going to contrast the two and see the theological and I think practically helpful truths that God has in the contrast. First general observation. Did you see the familiar sounding names? Not only in like Enoch and Lamech, but even like there's Mahujael, Methushahel, kind of sounds like Methuselah. I mean, they're just very similar sounding. Notice also their extraordinary long lifespans. Yeah, you see that? Like, wow. So they live like 900-some years, 800-some years, and so on and so on. Yeah, that's crazy, right? Is that true? Or is this some sort of, like, metaphor? Or is it, how is it possible people could live so long? Well, the plain reading of the text is that these are actual years and ages. People have tried to say, well, no, for example... Um, you could take uh, Mahalael, for example. Did he really live this long? Well, maybe that was, uh, he's like the king, and these are his sons and grands. It's like a tribal idea. Not really one man, but all these. Well, then you get a problem because listed in the same as Mahalael is Noah. Well, we know for a fact that Noah's life, he's a real, we have the rest of the story about him, right? And his kids are real and all that sort of stuff. And so it just doesn't work to try to find some other way to say this isn't actually these people that lived this long and had these children and did these things. That's the plain reading of Scripture. Also, something that might fascinate you, this is the generate Genesis 9 um, genealogy after from Noah to Abraham. Notice something about the blue lines. Do you notice anything about those? A sharp drop-off in their length. So sharp, Shem lives two, a third less than anyone before him, and he was a pre-flood guy. And then after that, Arphaxad and Salah, Shem's two kids, their time span is half of what it was for anyone else previous. Until you get down to Abraham and Tira, and these guys, and Nahor, these guys are living, yes, long lives, but not at even close to what was before, the, before, before the, their ancestors. And that's interesting, and we'll cover that later in that genealogy, just one little note. This, I know that I shouldn't because we don't have time, but did you see, do you see this red dotted line there? 
That's when Shem dies. Did you know that Shem outlived Abraham? He lived longer than Abraham did. Um, he actually, uh, the, got Noah's son lived longer than the guy we know. So like just, this is kind of mind-boggling. Anyways, that's for later. Back to these guys. So this other line right here, this other red dotted line right there, that's Adam's death. Notice that for a moment with me. Lamech, Noah's father, was, yes, toward the end of Lamech, Noah, Adam's life, but was for a brief period a contemporary of the first man. And if you want to go further, how about Seth and Enosh? Seth's death right here. Seth died approximately when Noah was born, when Lamech had Noah. So could you imagine that you actually, Lamech is actually potentially having conversations with the third person who ever lived? Well, third son after Adam and Eve. That's amazing to think about. And maybe this is part of the reason for the extraordinary long lives. I think the first reason that God gave that is for the fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth. But the second reason is there is no drought of experiential knowledge in this next thousand years. Now this is speculation, but Enoch talking to dad Jared, hey, I'm just not sure if I understand all this about the seed and sin and all that sort of stuff. He's like, let's go visit great-great-grandpa Adam. And let's talk about that a little bit. The guy that was there in the garden. Like, there's no drought of experiential knowledge in these first thousand years. And it is presumed, I think rightfully so, that these individuals lived at the same sort of rate as these individuals. In other words, the evil had with them the same experiential knowledge there's no excuse but what about these long ages it's almost when you see this massive difference between the two it's almost like there may have been i don't know some sort of cataclysmic environmental catastrophe destroying food sources massive changes to the climate ice ages and diseases rising up that cause people to live less amount of time as before maybe there was Something like that. And maybe the Bible would devote chapters to describing this. So it's explainable, right? It's understandable. It's not unreasonable. One of the things to note, though, in this genealogical list is the repetition of a certain phrase. And he died. Even on the good line, the godly ones still die. It is appointed Unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. God is merciful, but death is certain. And a delayed fulfillment of God's judgment or promise is not an unfulfillment of that judgment or promise. But once again, the point of the genealogy, Noah is the focal point. The word Naham means relief. Comfort from which Noah is derived. And we see that in verse 29. He, Lamech, called his name Noah, saying, This one will, Naham, comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands. After a thousand years, and you look at Lamech on the other side, it seems the way of Cain will win. But there is still hope that the seed of the woman, 
Perhaps this is that one. Perhaps this is the naham, the rest that God will bring. And he was, sort of. Noah is a deliverer who brings what rest. But not as Lamech likely expected. Not ultimately the final deliverer. But yes, a deliverer that will bring the appointed ones, the chosen ones, this, the godly ones that are chosen, safely through divine judgment through the ark of salvation. So yes, he is the relief, but a relief that comes with the destruction of the world as they know it. But I want to spend the final few minutes here in contrasting the genealogies. First, I want to bring, bring to your mind the contrast between Enoch and Enosh. Now, this is Enoch, the son of Cain, and Enosh, the son of Seth. And the reason I want to bring this to your attention is because the Scripture brings it to our attention in the contrast. Cain's firstborn, Enoch, is connected to the glory of man calling cities according to their name. Enosh's legacy is connected to the glory of God because it says, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And do you see the contrast that's being done in chapter 4? That's in 426 and 417. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. He built a city and called the name of the city after Enoch. Look at 25, uh, 6. And as for Seth, him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call the name of the Lord. And there's an intentional contrast being made here in the Hebrew text. Cain's firstborn is connected to the glory of man. Seth's firstborn is connected to the glory of God. Cain calls the city that he has built with his hands according to his son. In, in, in Enosh's day, Seth's day, they call on the name of the Lord, something outside of this world, something better and bigger and more important. And you could trace the lineage. What happened with Cain and his descendants? Well, we would expect to read there, there's, well, of course, they're the bad guys. So there's famine and pestilence and poverty, and they get what they deserve, right? No, they actually build cities. They actually develop music and agriculture and metals. In fact, what became of Cain and his descendants? So he seemed actually they do pretty well. They seem rather, rather well off. And by the way, the scripture is not condemning music or livestock or metalwork. We know that actually David, a man after God's own heart, was involved in at least two of those. So this isn't that these were evil origins of music or the evil origins of metallurgy or whatever we would look at here rather there's just simply a contrast being made Seth's line is not marked by human development but by spiritual devotion while the world makes much of dedicating cities God people make much of dedication to Yahweh what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. What does it profit if you gain a city named after you and develop music and, and 
and weapons and tools and do wonderful inventions and yet you don't call on the name of the Lord. And that's the contrast between Enoch and Enosh. For a thousand years, it seems as if Cain's way, the temporal earthly development was the right way. But when we come to know it, we'll see the temporal developments of man washed away in a deluge of wrath. Natural man puts his hope in his hands, in himself. Spiritual man puts his hope on calling on the name of the Lord. Live for the life promised to be, not merely the life you can build now. Live for the life promised to be, not the life you can build now. The second contrast is Enoch and Lamech. Now, I, my, because of the way the listing goes, you can't really see it, but these are both the seventh individuals. And they are meant to be, I think, the main um, contrasting point. Lamech murdered for his glory, while Enoch walks with God. Walking with God, what does that mean? I think in the text it looks back to Eden. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. No, I don't believe Enoch was sinless. But his life was lived in submission to God's will and God's plan. To speak of and to God. To hear from him. To repent when wronging him. To live with God as the point of life. Or as the Westminster Confession aptly says... The chief end of man, to live with the chief end of man fully in view, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what it means to walk with God, to enjoy God, to go for a walk with Him is the idea here. And this is descriptive of Enoch, and yet the opposite is being described of Lamech. Enoch loved himself. He enjoyed himself. Hear my voice. Listen to my speech. I killed a boy. I killed a young man because I got a little bruise. He got what he got, what he, what he deserved. But Enoch walks with God. There is a complete different value system. Both in Enosh and the good Enoch. So God took him. That is, he escaped death. Very unique. Only one other mention of that in Scripture with the man Elijah. This is not the normal experience even for the godly people. We can get that from reading chapter 5. Most of them die, right? Yet the principle is that those who are united to God in Yahweh will always escape true death. In other words, though Enoch gives us a parable, a pattern, something that, that we won't, can't expect to experience the escape of physical death, he gives us a parable of what those who call on the name of the Lord and walk with God can expect ultimately to experience. And that is this, that for those who walk with God, it is not death to die. And so you have this insane Arrogant depravity contrasted with peaceful, humble communion with God. 
between Lamech and Enoch. Finally, and we're out of time, but I I need to work through this with you, so I hope you have patience with me. The first contrast is actually found in chapter 4, verse 1, and 425. We didn't read 4.1, so I'm going to read it now. It actually has nothing to do with the lists of people, but rather the beginning, Cain and Seth, and Eve's response to the birth of Cain and Eve's response to the birth of Seth. It is very different and very striking. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, now Adam knew his wife, she conceived and bore Cain. Kanati. And said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Let me just, ish, uh, man, I have acquired, kanati, I have acquired, I have gotten. Uh, Pastor Caleb mentioned this last week. This could even be translated, I have made or I have created. Uh, of the Lord or from the Lord. Um, I think the ESV is probably most accurate in its, its rendition here with this article there, with the help from the Lord. So, I have made a man with Yahweh's help, is what she says. Now, she didn't say anything untrue or wrong. I mean, any more than when you, if you had a child, when you had a child and you looked at your, your husband or your wife and said, look what we made, like, any more than you oh, you didn't make that. God did that. What are you, so arrogant? No, it's just an, an expression, right? And I think it's the same here. There's not an arrogance here in Eve. There's nothing. She's simply describing because he'd been promised to be the mother of all the living. Wow, it worked. <laughs> we did it. So it's not necessarily wrong what she says when she says, I have acquired or made a man from the Lord or man with the help from the Lord. But just notice the difference in how she describes the words when she has Seth after This man from the help of the Lord murders her son. Just look at how she has changed in her approach. Look at 425. And Adam knew his wife again. That's going back to 4.1, right? And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth or Set. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain killed. Now, what is radical to me is the word set or shet. It means to put, to place, to appoint, to choose. Contrast that with I made, with Elohim put, Elohim appointed you see the difference if nothing else the subject of the sentence is different right I made Elohim appointed perhaps there is grief and humility in her words will I even keep him my other two are gone is it not true of your life That when God has taken things from you, that you're a little less loud in expressing your accomplishment, right? You're a little bit more tentative about what you're going to say in this situation. 
But her focus shifts from what she, by God's grace and command, did to what God has appointed. And I think this is important. I think the name of Seth characterizes everybody else in this list. We could use another word. It's it's not the same word, but I think it's a synonymous thought, synonymous concept. And we could use that word elect. God has elect. He has chosen. He has appointed. And this line is the line of the elect, the appointed ones, the chosen ones. I have appointed, and we're out of time, so let me just briefly mention the other big shift, Sarah. Seed. She said, I've gotten an ish, man. And this time she says, no, God appointed a seed. Remember seed? Seed is the promise. Seed is the word of promise that God will provide the seed of the woman, the one who will crush the head of the snake. Perhaps Eve is saying, maybe he's going to crush. Maybe this one that God has appointed, this appointed one, this chosen one that he has given to me, maybe he will be the snake crusher. Maybe he'll be the seed promised. And, and he is in a small seed sort of way. He's not the ultimate seed. She goes on in her text and even the last thing she says um, as a substitute. Well, if that isn't some sort of New Testament language. A seed in the place of. And then she says, I like this phrase. She says, for me. I made a man. He appointed a promise. And it's going to benefit me. For me. See the contrast in the genealogy here? See the contrast in Eve's declarations? Two quick things. The sovereign ordinations of a gracious God are better than the greatest developments of fallen man. Remember that this week. The sovereign ordinations of a gracious God are better than the greatest ingenuities and developments of man. And two, this points to Christ. Seth, the seed appointed, will continue with seeds Appointed and seed appointed and seed appointed and seed appointed until another young woman is appointed a seed in her virgin womb. And that seed, better than Adam, better than Seth, he is the one we read about that did and will ultimately we will experience the crushing of evil in the serpent's head through his death, his resurrection, his mediation, his return. That's our seed we're looking forward to. Well, as I said, we're out of time. Please close with me in prayer.